Father in heaven, you have sent your Son to redeem us, and you have given me the task of proclaiming him and him alone. Make me faithful to that task. Lord, you and your Son have sent your Spirit to open the ears of your redeemed people so that when they hear the preaching of the gospel, they would hear it as the voice of their good shepherd. And we pray that he would do his mighty work in us to make us faithful to receive it. And I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you to turn, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 29. 1 Samuel chapter 29, we're going to be finishing the book of 1 Samuel today. It's going to be finished. Read the last three chapters. And one day, my preaching ministry will be done, will be finished in the way that this book will, is finished today. And in the end, the question will be, did I preach Christ alone? Did I preach him? Did I preach Christ and him crucified? And I pray that I would be found faithful to that task. And the Lord Jesus, when he handled the word of God, he handled it in such a way that he showed that it was Christ and Christ alone that is proclaimed even from the first pages of the Old Testament, thousands of years before he came. We began this series before we began it in the book of Ruth, and we learned from the book of Ruth, we got to see a kinsman redeemer in action. The family of Elimelech was in great distress. They had lost their land. Naomi was without a husband, and she was without heirs. And the Lord demonstrated how through the office of the kinsman redeemer, that one man could stand in place of the whole family and what he would do would count for those family members. He would, he would even count for those family members who had already died. He could undo what they had done and he could do the things that they could not do because they were too dead to do them. And then the book of Ruth spills over into the book of 1 Samuel because right at the, at the end of the book of Ruth we're told that Elimelech's grandson, great-great-grandson, was actually David, who would be the king of Israel. And so in the first book of Samuel, we learn that the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer of all of God's people would be a royal kinsman redeemer. This man would be a royal kinsman redeemer. It means he'd be a king, which means that he would possess a people God would give. He would make his nation into a kingdom that he would give to them, give to this king so that that king would possess them, he would own them, and he would redeem them, and that he would lead them in this way. And we know that David's great, 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 times a few, grandson was the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our royal kinsman redeemer. And we learn much about the, the coming Messiah's redemption through the Messiahship of David. God first raises up uh, King Saul. He chooses King Saul and gives him a Messiahship. But he does it knowing that he is actually, that Saul is the, the choice of Israel's hearts. Saul represents Israel's hearts, the Messiah that they wanted, the redemption that they wanted. And Saul raises up, or God raises up King Saul only for the purpose of demonstrating how foolish an idea he is. 
and that God's plans for Israel are much better than Israel's own plans for themselves. And so here we come to the end of Saul's reign, and now we get to see the beginnings of the reign of King David, whom God gave a permanent and eternal messiahship that he'd pass on to his sons and sons and sons until there would be a son who would live forever and save his people. So, thus far in the historical account, God chose Saul and he has rejected him. Saul's kingship has failed and the Lord rejected him, but God has chosen David to have a kingship after God's heart, a messiahship after God's heart, a redemption of God's own choosing for his people. And Saul knows this is true. He knows he's been rejected and he knows that David has been chosen by God to replace him and so he's trying to kill David and so David's on the run and he's now living in a Philistine city that has been given to him by King Achish and this city is called Ziklag. David has been fighting Israel's enemies while living in Ziklag but he's been pretending that he's been fighting Israel and her allies and so that's how he's gained the king's trust, the Philistine king Achish's trust. But now that trust is being tested because here's the problem. The Philistine kings and lords are assembling their armies to do battle against Israel. And David is told he's required to lead his own army into battle with the Philistines against the people of God, against the people of Israel. And now the Lord has made many promises to David. He's given him responsibilities as Israel's Messiah. But here all of the events join together to make it look like it's impossible for these promises to come true. The decisions of kings and lords around him look like they're all working together to make all of God's promises impossible to keep. See, if David tells the Philistines he can't join them in battle against the Israelites and he just wants to stay home, they're going to know that he isn't loyal to them and they're just going to kill him. Not only that, but since his, he, he and his army are away from Ziklag, who's all alone back home in Ziklag? His family, they are unprotected. And so if he lets it know that he's not loyal to the Philistines, he's not even there to protect his family. But he also dares not fight against his own people, for to do so would be to be fighting against the Lord God of hosts of the angel armies. That's a situation that seems to be the end of God's promises. And the Lord has promised that He is in control of kings and rulers and lords of the earth and He works all things for, the good, uh, for His own glory and the good of His people. And if it's true that God is in control of the Philistine lords and kings, then how is it true that God is keeping that promise? So, this is where we have left off. So let's read together 1 Samuel chapter 29. We're going to read the whole thing. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. 
But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send him back, send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary toward us. to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Wouldn't it be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish said, called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong with you from the day you're coming to me to this day, of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us into the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So that brings us to our first point. The first point is this, the Lord sovereignly uses the hatred of his enemies to rescue his people. The Lord sovereignly uses the hatred of his enemies to rescue his people. And so the armies of the Philistines now includes David's army. And it's assembling. And it's passing in parade by their hundreds and by their thousands. Picture this military parade, army after army joined together. And and then the, the lords of the Philistines see these armies pass And eventually they see an army of Hebrews, of Jews, of Israelites, led by their famous famous Jewish leader, David, on their way to fight the Jewish nation. Something doesn't add up, they're thinking here. Now you can picture David and his men in a terrible place, hoping they won't have to fight and hoping that these Philistine armies won't now turn on them. What are these Hebrews doing here? It's the Lord's challenge, King Achish. Don't worry, he says, you can can trust David. He's proven his loyalty to me, and he's even made himself a stench to Israel. Remember that Achish thinks David has been attacking Israelite towns for over a year now, although he has not. But the Philistine lords aren't buying it. This is actually a perfect, perfect opportunity for David, they think, who's hated in Israel, now to become loved in Israel again by collecting a bunch of Philistine heads and then delivering them over to Saul. But King Achish defends David three times. He is innocent. He is blameless. I find no fault in him. Three times. King Achish, an unbelieving king who hates the Lord and Israel, he insists that he has found no fault in David, God's chosen Messiah, little m, Messiah. And each time he finds no fault in him, the lords of the Philistines who hate David, they're not buying it. But God is in charge of what's happening. He is sovereign over these men. 
And naturally, they hate God and God's people and God's anointed Messiah. And God uses their hatred of David to actually bring the rescue of the people that belong to David. God uses their hatred of David to fulfill his plans to use David to reign and redeem his people. And so eventually, Achish relents and he sends David and his Hebrew army back to Ziklag. And the rejection is precisely the way that God brings about his purposes for Israel. It's the way that he and his men are able to avoid fighting Israel without being targeted before doing so. God sovereignly uses the hatred and distrust and rejection which the enemies of his Messiah have toward him. He uses that to bring about his plan. And think about this. Earlier, he used the trust of Achish, the enemy king. God sovereignly used the trust of Achish to fulfill his plans for David. And that happens often in the Bible's historical accounts of God's dealing with his people. He uses the kindness of unbelieving foreign kings to fulfill his purposes for Israel and their little M messiahs. He also, though, uses the hatred of the unbelieving foreign kings to fulfill his purposes for his people and Israel's anointed king. And that is the pattern of biblical history. That is the pattern in his, for his purposes. It shows God's love and faithfulness and his sovereign control over nations and kings to fulfill his plans for his people and his anointed Messiah. So three times, the three times which King Achish, who is an unbelieving foreign king, declares he finds no fault in David, God's Messiah, that can remind us of the times that Pilate, a thousand years later, an unbelieving foreign ruler said exactly the same thing. Remember when, David, when David's son, Jesus, was brought to trial to Pilate, Pilate examined him and said, I find no fault in him. Now this assures us, this pattern that God establishes with David, it assures us that the success of the Messiah isn't dependent on the affection or the hatred of unbelieving foreign kings. It's not dependent on that. God will use that. God is in control of all those things. But the success of his Messiah and his plan to redeem his people through the Messiah is not dependent on these things, but it uses these men to bring about his purposes. And so what that shows us with, with, with Jesus' life It shows us that Pilate and the Jewish leaders were actually not the ones who were in control of Jesus' life. Jesus' life was not taken from him. This whole thing with Pilate, just the same way it was set up with David and Ziklag, this whole situation with Pilate and the Jewish leaders in this trial with Jesus was set up by God to fulfill his plan. And so if this plan included the death of the Messiah, then that is actually how the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would redeem his people. So this assures us that Jesus' life was not taken from him, but it was actually laid down. Jesus laid his life down for his sheep. 
What does this say for us today? Because the world would have us be worried. Our own hearts would have us be worried about what happens with the decisions of governments. And this tells us that we can be incredibly grateful for good and righteous decisions from unbelieving governments, from secular governments. We can be grateful for them. And we can see how God uses those things for the benefit of His church and the purposes of His Messiah in saving His church. But it also means that he's not dependent on those things and he actually actively is using the decisions of these men and women, these lords and kings and prime ministers and presidents and dictators. He's using all of these men and women like pawns, chess pieces, to work out his plan of his Messiah to redeem his church. And that brings us here to our next point. Or sorry, we'll, we'll read the next, the, the next uh, passage of Scripture, which we'll find in the first 10 verses of chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, remember they're going back to Ziklag after being sent there in shame, the Amalekites had made, had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and they had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great and small. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam, of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Bezor. There those who were left stayed behind. Where those who were left stayed behind. uh, Behind stayed, sorry. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. And this brings us to our second point, which is the salvation worked by the Lord's anointed is foretold by prophecy. The the salvation worked by the Lord's anointed is foretold by prophecy. Remember, anointed is just the English word for Messiah or Christ. So David and his men returned to Ziklag only to find that the Amalekites had raided the city and had taken all their wives and children captive. And they weep and they wail until they have no energy left. They can't even cry anymore. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, trying until you have, crying until you have no energy to cry. But there's no dead bodies on the ground. So that means their families must have been taken alive, which is cause for hope But it's also cause for grief because if they had died, at least their suffering would be over. But now 
they are in the hands of ruthless men. As it often happens, sadness turns to anger, anger toward David, their leader, and they talk about, in their anger, they talk about stoning him. But it says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. We saw that in verse 6. And now having the Psalms written by David, we, we know that this problem And even maybe God's promise is to avenge his enemies. So God strengthened David. David strengthened himself in the Lord. And these are good ways to strengthen yourself in the Lord, to look at his words in Scripture and to feast on the words of God and to gain strength from him, resting in his love and the faithfulness to his promises, which he has actually made. But we are not David. None of us are the Messiah. Anointed by God to be the one who owns God's people and stands in their place to lead and rescue them. None of us are that. But He is a little m, Messiah. So, He's able to do what we can't do. He, he consults the priest, Abiathar. So He, as the Messiah, He asks for prophecies for how He is going to rescue His people. And Abiathar takes the ephod, which is the priestly garment. And as a prophet, he asks the Lord if he should pursue the raiders. And the Lord responds that David should pursue this victory for his people and that David would be successful in winning this victory for his people. But this wasn't the first time, if you're paying attention, it's not the first time that David, the Lord's anointed, sought the word of the Lord about a people in need of salvation. You remember that Keilah was also, this city Keilah was also in great need of salvation. And the priest was asked to come forward with the ephod and also a prophecy was asked for and received about how the anointed, how the Messiah would save and redeem his people who are in distress. And so we see that God is establishing this pattern in Messiah history. So Israel wasn't going to, wasn't supposed to see David, the man anointed by God to rule and redeem them. They weren't supposed to see him as a man winning random victories. That these victories were sort of random. Like they based based on his own strength or the circumstance. They are just sort of out of control. You know, we'll see how history turns out. They were not supposed to see history or the Messiah or God's work through the Messiah through that. God was establishing a pattern which demonstrated that the salvations, the redemptions, the victories that he would win through his Messiahs, the little M ones and then ultimately the big M Messiah, Jesus, would be ones that were prophesied, which were the ones that fulfill his will, and were therefore in his sovereign control. And I, I think that sometimes the way people talk, even in the church, we get the impression that God is sort of flying by the seat of his pants. 
It's good versus evil, and it's a pretty fair fight. 50-50, maybe 51-49, but it's basically fair, and I guess we'll, we'll see what happens. And the pattern of, of David's messiahship with this prophecies, prophesying his victories, it kills that idea. God foretells and determines the kind of salvation his people will need and, and how it's going to be accomplished. So that means they can reject false messiahs who promise a different kind of salvation than God himself promised. And they could know when the real one finally comes. And they can know what to expect of him when he finally comes. And I want you to see how this pattern continues as we read one of the summaries of the gospel, which we often begin our worship services with. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to encourage you to do that. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. See how this works and how it's finally fulfilled. This pattern of God prophesying redemptions by the Messiah and then fulfilling them in history after they've been prophesied. See how this works and it is finally summarized in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll begin at verse 3. This is Paul speaking. See if you can pick this out. Paul summarizing the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The wonderful benefit of having Messiah salvations prophesied before they happen. That's, that's a long list. That's too many to mention, all the benefits of having that prophesied before it happens. But I'm going to mention two benefits here. First, it adds certainty. And second, it adds clarity. So we'll start with certainty. First of all, why is it a benefit that the Messiah's victories are prophesied before they actually happen? It, it adds it acts certainty. And so you see this here worked out with David. See, David and his men went from being so distressed that they couldn't even cry to being strengthened with confidence even before redemption had taken place because God has promised it. So now they could enjoy it even before it happened. They could enjoy the victory even before the victory took place because it had come out of the mouth of God as a promise. It gives confidence. Second reason is clarity. It's not enough to have hope or confidence. God, confidence without, without content or clarity is basically wishful thinking. We're not told simply by God to have faith. In what? We're told God's promises and we're and it's these promises of God that we have faith in. And that is especially true of the great salvation he's worked by the great son of David, the great and true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was prophesied that he would save his people by dying for them on the cross, by facing death instead of avoiding it, by taking their punishment rather than simply saying punishments aren't needed by God, and by rising from the dead, conquering death instead of them. And so since Christ is the final and one true Messiah, we have no more priests, no more prophets, and ephods. 
We might wear ties, we might not wear ties, but we don't wear ephods. His salvation has been finally accomplished. And so we look to His Word, which was established once and for all, when He established the church and won our salvation by His death and resurrection. We look to His Word, the Bible, to know what Christ purchased for us and about His love for us and about what He has promised to do in the future and how He will hold His church fast until that time. So that since these blessings have already been paid for with His blood and since they have been promised and prophesied by God, we can even begin to enjoy them now before they happen because they are as good as being done because God cannot lie. Let's continue reading. 1 Samuel 30 and we'll begin at verse 11, or continue on at verse 11, reading to the end of the chapter. So they're on their way, to Zik, or on their way from Ziklag to chase this raiding army. They found an Egyptian in the open country, and they brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink. They gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirits revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against, uh, and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, neither whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow, uh, to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to, to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and his children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would, who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They, share, they shall share alike. 
And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And when David came to Ziklag, he set a part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth, in the Negev, in Jadar, in Aror, in Sifmoth, and Eshtomah, in Rachel, in the cities of the Jeremielites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Bort, Ashan, at Atek, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. That brings us to our third point. And here's our third point. The Lord's anointed graciously shares the spoil of his redemption. The Lord's anointed, remember, anointed means Christ or Messiah. The Lord's anointed graciously shares the spoil of his redemption. So David and his men, strengthened by the word of the Lord, set out to rescue their families. There's 600 of them. They set out, but since it's such a long journey and they took such a fast pace, 200 of them are too tired to go once they reach the brook of Bizor. And David gives them permission out of compassion to remain there while he and the rest of the army continue the chase. And, and while they travel, they find a sick Egyptian slave who belonged to the Amalekites and had participated in the raid against David's family at Ziklag. But he was left in the wilderness to die because he was no longer useful to his master. And so David nurses him back to strength and he finds intel for where to find his family and the families of his men. Though they had only 400 men, they destroy the Amalekites so badly that only 400 of them survive by running away. You see the irony. David's men started with 400, and they beat the, the, uh, these men so badly that they only have 400 men left. Not a single member of David's family or the family of his men were lost. And not only that, they found themselves with more riches and more supplies than before they had actually been attacked. And as their leader, the spoils were said to belong to David. Now, how is he going to divide that treasure, which compensates for their losses, but it's also going to sustain them while living as refugees? Remember, they're going to be living as refugees for the next number of un unknown number of, of months or even years because they're not welcome in Israel. And so specifically, there is this question of the 200 men who remained at the brook of Bezor. Because they were too weak. Here's the question. We've already seen what the Amalekites would do. The Egyptian slave is a perfect, perfect example of that. They leave him to die because he's not of any value. He didn't earn it. And so this is the suggestion of David's own men. Let's treat them a little bit better than the, uh, the Amalekites treated their Egyptian slave. But notice what the, the Lord says, and the words of 1 Samuel are the, the Lord's words. Notice what the Lord says of the men who fought valiantly in battle with David, but who spoke of their 200 weak brothers the way that the Amalekites spoke of their sick Egyptian slave. He calls them worthless fellows. These men had just won a great, valiant victory, and the Lord is calling them worthless fellows. Now, for the sake of context, in this book, Nabal the fool was called a worthless fellow just a few chapters back. And the men who would not accept the first anointed king of the Lord were called worthless fellows. And it's very, very helpful to note 
that the reason they were rejecting these 200 men from being sharing in the Messiah's victories, the reason they were rejecting them is because they were useless. They were worthless. And God now is calling them worthless. They're forgetting, as David reminds them, that victory was not something you even accomplished. Something you, did, you didn't earn that. It was given to you by the Lord. The Lord worked this. It was a gift. By definition, gifts aren't earned. Otherwise, it's wages. This was a gift. Not only that, there were people who received from this spoil, from this treasure, who had, didn't participate in that, in that battle at all. Treasure was given to towns around in, in Judah, those who had shown kindness and friendship to David and his men while they were on the run in a way that Nabal, the worthless fellow, refused to do. And so what can we learn here? Those people were not given that treasure or those supplies because of anything that they had earned. They were given them as a gift of grace and the only thing that mattered in the distribution of this gift and treasure was that they were connected to David. That they had some sort of union with, with David, the Messiah. That's all that really mattered. So long as they were connected and in relationship with him, the Messiah, then they were going to be a recipient of all this treasure and all that he had won, the victory that God had given him. And so it is with the great Messiah, Jesus the son of David. The redemption he wins for us is distributed by grace. Grace means in a way that's not deserved. Not everyone receives the benefits of Christ's salvation. Many people go to their graves and then on to judgment and receive what they deserve for their sins. But some people, instead of getting what they deserve, will get what Christ deserves. And it won't be because they were useful to him. It won't be because they participated in a fight in a way that helped him win the battle. It will have only to do with whether they are united to him. Do they have union with God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ? And the Bible tells us how a person has union with the Messiah. It's not by loving him. It's not by obeying His commandments. It's not by being worth His time, but by faith. Faith, resting, trusting, believing, and trusting your soul to Jesus unites you to Him and all of His benefits. And so, brothers and sisters, enjoy working for the Lord. Enjoy spreading the gospel. Enjoy being a good mom and dad, husband, wife, brother, sister, friend, daughter, son, neighbor. Enjoy the gift of being able to work alongside the Lord in these things, to work for His good pleasure and glory. But do not for one moment think that that earns you a stake in His victory. No, that victory is distributed by grace. Brothers and sisters, this is also a great relief for those of you who have been convinced by the modern ridiculousness of the church that God somehow needs your contributions. 
and that you should be ashamed if you're not very valuable to him if you haven't made it worth his while. Your worth is in not what you can do, but your union with Christ guarantees your inheritance, which was not worked by you or any strong brother or sister other than the Lord Jesus Christ. What a redeemer. And after hearing of David's redemption and honor, which, which God brought, because in part the Philistines hated him, remember he used that to actually bring redemption, now we come to the part of the end of Saul's life, which is also coming because the Philistines hated him. You see how the Lord works both of those things from the one thing, the hatred of the Philistines. So let's read 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Amminadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul had died, or Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their city, cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen at on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news, good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall at Beth Shan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Phil what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall at Beth Shan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. And that leads us to our last point of the series of the book, and that is this. Even in discipline and dishonor, the Lord cares for the honor of his people. Even in discipline and dishonor, the Lord cares for the honor of his people. Saul and his sons are defeated in battle. Saul's injured and he's helpless. It's just a matter of time before the enemy captures him and dishonors him, maybe tortures him, parades him around. So he commands his armor bearer to put him out of his misery and spare his honor, but the, the man wouldn't do it. So Saul kills himself and then his armor bearer follows suit. He dies with his king. And the Philistines, as Saul expected, dishonor him after he's dead. But Saul is not there to experience that dishonor of his body. Of course, he's, he's dead. And the, the dishonor of his body being paraded around like a trophy is sure a dishonor. But Saul, of course, doesn't experience it. But you know who does experience that dishonor? Of the anointed king of Israel being paraded around like a trophy 
That is a dishonor to Israel. That is a public shaming, not just of Saul, but of Israel and even Israel's God. So the way that God designed Messiahship, Israel's honor was tied to their Messiah. Just like Elimelech's life and his honor was tied to Boaz's actions back in the book of Ruth. And so this is especially a a problem with the public shame of a headless king hung on a wall. But see how the Lord stirs up these godly men. They risk their lives on a black ops covert mission under the cover of darkness to steal back the bodies of Saul and his sons and to give them an honorable burial. This is important because Saul stood in the place of Israel, right? As the Messiah, he stood in the place of Israel, thankfully only for a time. Just as the Lord promised, Saul's reign did come to an end. God raised him up to give Israel the king which personified their own hearts. He reigned on a throne which Israel thought was enough to save them. One which God merely helps and redeems the worthy. That would be enough for us. We want a throne like that, where God helps and redeems the worthy through that throne. And for Israel's sake, God raises up Saul so he could publicly reject that idea. It's kind of the way that you might raise a question with your kid. Do you think I love you and take care of you because you're worthy? You would only raise that question so you could publicly and officially say no. The throne of David was one which succeeded and which continued completely based upon God's strength. David's throne would continue because of God's strength, because of God's holiness, because of God's faithfulness, because of God's reign, and because of God's great love for his people. And it was David's messiahship which Jesus inherits and therefore finally fulfills. Saul's reign was a judgment on Israel for their heart's desires. It was a discipline, a judgment against them from the hand of God. But notice how even in this act of God's discipline toward them, by giving them Saul and then bringing this defeat to them, notice how the Lord ultimately cares for the honor of his people. This is just a token of that. These men stealing away at night, risking their lives to steal the body of the Messiah so that they could give him a proper burial so that Israel is not, per, not perpetually shamed. So God disciplines his chosen people. But shame and, and dishonor will not be the final word. Even though we sin and even though God will bring painful discipline against them. Now for those who are united to his great Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, that discipline and suffering will not end in dishonor, but in the kind of honor which only Jesus deserves and that which he graciously shares with the unworthy who entrust their souls to him. See, he's going to discipline his church. And he will plan for her to go through times of pain and dishonor. And sometimes he will use the hatred of wicked 
kings and leaders to accomplish that discipline. And sometimes he will use the love and righteous reign of unbelieving leaders. But he will only do these things to purify his church and to maximize her enjoyment of his great love for her, which will ultimately and finally and not in her dishonor, but in her glory. And the promise is this, those whom Christ predestined, he died for. And he calls to himself by giving saving faith. And though he will certainly bring his church through much shame and heartache, he will certainly bring her through these things and will glorify his church in such a way that only he could claim to deserve. Because he already suffered on the cross for what his church deserves. So she can enjoy the glory that only he deserves. What love. What a Messiah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that when you created us, when you created the human race, Lord, that you created us in such a way that if we fell, that a representative chosen by you and qualified could stand in our place and take what we deserve and do what we were unable to and frankly unwilling to do. And we are grateful, Lord, that you gave us such a perfect kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, your own son, that while we were enemies, you held Nothing back, Lord, you even gave your own beloved Son as our Messiah to fulfill the promises that you gave through David's reign to redeem your people. And Lord, it is a good thing, the sweetest thing, to have been given as a possession to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a good thing that we do not own ourselves, but that Christ owns us. It is a good thing that we are not independent, but that we are united to Christ as part of his body, he our head. And Lord, I pray.